just give you a couple resources if you want to learn more about prayer. Um, I know it's a Presbyterian thing. If <laughs> give more books to read. But so I've been really helped by Tim Keller's ministry in general. But specifically, some of his stuff on prayer, some of his best things. So the, here is a devotional called The Songs of Jesus by Tim and his wife, Tim and Kathy Keller. And it's a year devotional on the Psalms. And it, what I like about it is it isn't, it's not going to take you long to go through it. Because it's designed to just get you to think about big ideas and put it into your own words. I mean, the prayer he's ta they're teaching you to pray is about three or four lines so that you can, you know, it's to help get your heart primed, <laughs> you know, to, get, to get warm as you prepare to, to, to pray. And if you want the more theological reasoning behind it, he also has a book on prayer. And so I'll put the information up about them on our website, on the blog. It's pretty easy to, to find on Amazon or wherever you buy books from. Just give you something else to think about. Now, as we read our text, we're going to read Luke 17, verses 20 and following. And you're going to see this is going to be part one of a two-part series. So, yeah, I'll explain it as we go. This is God's word. Let's, let's read it. Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of the God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And this is God's word. It's completely true and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're about to to look into what, what it means for your kingdom to come. I know we are all far too easily distracted by matters of our own kingdom, so I, I pray that you would give us the desire to pray, uh, let, let your kingdom come. And so may your reign of grace conquer our hearts, and may your spirit give us eyes to see, for unless we are born again, we can't even see it. 
So bless us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you went through that and said there was nothing about prayer there. What is, what is this text about? And why are you talking about a kingdom? And we're democratic. We vote. I mean, I know we only have a couple options, but it's still, we, at least we have, we have a vote. And then you've got <laughs> the end of this text, which is very motivational. Right, where the bodies are, you'll find some vultures. You know, so go pray. But here's why I want, this is, this is the beginning or the introduction or the context for the parable that we're going to look at next week. Uh, the parable of the unjust judge or the persistent widow in, in Luke 18. Because if you look at 18.1, what Jesus says, he says, then he tells them a parable about why they should keep praying and not give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't be distracted. Don't, even though you will be beaten up by life, don't stop. And then he tells the story to, to get us to pray. And then if you look at 18.8, the end of this parable, Jesus asks the question, and he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And if you know the story, right, the, the story about this persistent widow, she's got a complaint, she has a need, she goes to this judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about man. Right, he doesn't care about anyone except himself. And eventually he gives in because she's so annoying. She keeps bothering him. And there's nothing there about the Son of Man. There's nothing there about faith. I mean, th this is the conclusion to what we just read. Right, so here's the big idea. Right, Jesus' motivational parable on prayer, it's the end of a whole lot of teaching on the kingdom of God. You've got to ask why. Why, why would he tell this story in the midst of some doom and gloom right, of, of Jesus' second coming and the reality of God's judgment? And here it is. I think it's because Jesus assumes that we are normal people and we're far too easily distracted or discouraged. Right? He assumes that we, we will have trouble praying and that we will have trouble being disciplined, that we will, we will get tired, um, things will happen, and we won't be able to put words to, to, to be able to express to God our frustration, our anger, our fear. He assumes that things will happen that will shatter our faith, crush our motivation, or just capture our imaginations completely and send us off in a completely different direction. And so Jesus tells us this parable, don't give up. Jesus says, I want you to learn how to put your faith to work. And the sign of how you're going to put your faith to work is that you will pray, let your kingdom come, regardless of how comfortable your kingdom is. And so we're going to look at this passage through this lens. of Just asking, what, what is the kingdom of God and what distracts us from praying? Like I said, this is the beginning, so... This is much more descriptive than telling us what to do. But I think you'll find it really helpful as we get ready to hear then Jesus tell us the kind of God we pray to uh, next week. So let's look at this. Point number one is what kingdom is coming? 
because I know this isn't, we don't talk about kingdom language except in church. Right? We got rid of the British king 250 years ago, and we don't want him back. And so we need to, to think biblically, why should you care about the kingdom of God, and what is it? And so let's start, look at verse 20 of 17. And Jesus is asked this question, when will the kingdom of God come? Now, they have a reason for asking. They care. <laughs> right? I mean, so just start really simply. Do you, do you care about the kingdom of God? Here's why you should care. I mean, I know just because you're human, you have found cracks in the foundation of your kingdom. Something has happened or will happen that will show you that your world, your life, your kingdom is on a shaky foundation, no matter how optimistic you might be, or me, I'm, I'm including myself in here. Um, I'll give you a quote, H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, I mean, he's, this is an good example of naive optimism. I mean, he says this before World War II, just about humanity in general and his kingdom and how he sees the world going. He says, can we doubt presently that our race will more than realize our boldest imagination, that we will achieve unity and peace, that our children and our lives will live in a world made more splendid and more lovely than any palace or garden that we currently know. We're going to go from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. And then the concentration camps happen. And the senseless violence. Twelve years later, this is what he said. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which things had seemed well-nigh banished. Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out and his depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. <laughs> I know that's big, but all he's saying is, I looked at the world and things were going great. My life was comfortable. I was successful. The people around me were successful. They're smart. They're brilliant. They're working hard. Their families are beautiful. And all of a sudden, it came to a crashing halt in a way that I can't even make sense of. My kingdom is crumbling. And we say, I thought my life would be better than this. And we say things like that. And so we blame the government. We blame the people around us or above us. Or at some point, you'll get to the point, as, as we all do, as I do, have gotten to, say, I thought I would live my life better than this. I would make better decisions. And so here's the point. As we come and look at this passage about God's kingdom coming, we come with high expectations for what we would love our life to look like. Building, selling, farming, marriage, you know, all these things that Jesus described. And we come with this deep desire to find the one person, the one king, the one ruler 
that will make our kingdoms comfortable. That's why elections are, seasons are so angry. We want a king. We believe that if I am king, <laughs> most often, then my life will get better. Or if we have the right person in office, then life will get better. So we're going to go from strength to strength. If we get the right person in control, then our lives will flourish. This is why the Pharisees are saying, when will the kingdom of God come? Because the kingdom of God to them was synonymous, equal with the same ideas as shalom, as life being as it should be. I just, for your consideration, I mean, this is what we do. We have this, as human beings, we are wired to think this way, to, to have high hopes, and because of sin, because of the fall, um, a bitter reality. At the same time, so you see, like Robin Hood, it's in our stories. <laughs> when, when good King Richard returns, then poverty and injustice and, and horrible things will stop and life will be better in the kingdom. You see it in all these modern day movies about comic books. It's the same idea, they're tapping into the same hopes that if you have Superman, who the director is not shy about saying he's 30 years old, um, he's there to serve humanity, he comes from outside. There are people you see, all, you just have to watch the movie trailer. They see him come down from the sky, and people are just looking up in awe, saying, he's going to keep me safe. And the Pharisees are no different, because they know the story of the Bible, the story that is not only we want to be true, but is true. The Old Testament. Because here's, here's the kingdom of God, why you should care. That God had promised repeatedly all the way through the Old Testament that heaven would come down and invade earth and when the right king on the throne, his Messiah, life would flourish. The blind would see. The deaf would hear. The lion would lay down with the lamb. Your sin and your shame would be taken away forever. So, Lord, when will your kingdom come? Everybody has this desire. We don't know it, but... It, and to put Jesus, the, the scriptures are helping us put words to it, that, that our longing for the world to be as it should be is a longing for the, the right king, the true king, the once and future king, to come down to make a world where there'll be no more bodies and no more vultures. So look at it. What is the kingdom of God? Let's give a little more details to the Pharisees, these Bible teachers, to their understanding of the kingdom. Because then we can... Th go through the passage and it'll make a lot more sense. Okay, so the kingdom of God is good news and I want to convince you of that. As the Pharisees understand it, it's the kingdom of God, as the scriptures teach it, it's God's rule and reign coming from heaven to earth, being seen visibly in the Messiah. So you got this in Psalm 2. I'll give you some passages you can think about. God sets his king on his throne, says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and then he gives them all power and authority to rule the nations. Run to this king. He's the one who's going to make things right 
He has so much power that he just laughs at all the chaos in the world. Read through the book of Isaiah. I mean, it's just littered with pictures of what it'll be like in the future that are so good, almost too good to be true, to be to actually take place in Isaiah's day. Right? So you got Isaiah 35. When this king comes, let's make a highway through the wilderness for, for this king to come. And it says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And that's, that's just one thing. Sickness and sorrow will be past tense. In nearly every case, I gave you some other passages to look at in your, in your outline. It's God saying, I'm coming, my kingdom is coming, death will be swallowed up, no more will there be enemies, children will be able to play freely, be able to put their hand in a, in a, in a snake hole, which don't do that now, it's a bad idea. All of your enemies will be defeated, and as you, the promises get even bigger because it says, God, I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to remove your shame forever. This is Zephaniah chapter 3. It's not just get rid of evil out there. It's he's also going to remove evil on the inside. And for, for your shame, for your humiliation to be removed, and these are the, this is the description. No, no more lies, no more deceit, no more hiding. When the kingdom of God comes, you're just going to be able to rest and not be afraid. And to take away your shame, I mean, that's to erase the past. And to keep us from repeating the past and the future. <laughs> to, to take away that desire to sin, to do those things that we don't want to talk about to other people because we're too embarrassed. And the kingdom of God, if you take the Old Testament as a whole, it's, it's God coming from heaven to earth to rule and to reign, to destroy evil outside and destroy evil inside without destroying me. It's, it's good news. And you, can, you can start to see why Jesus says to the disciples, there's going to be days where you're just going to ache for this to, cut, to happen. And when you get the phone call, that you, a bad news, or a doctor's telling you about your health, you're going to ache for these to be true. And it, I mean, the, the word is desire, but it, it's much more intense in the, in the original language. Pharisees are, are asking a very good question. I know we always pick on the Pharisees as the self-righteous bad guys. They want to know, Jesus, when are you going to deal with these Romans who are oppressing us, who are charging us taxes, who are starving our children, who are corrupting worship? They're asking, when will history end and will it get better? When will my life not be an uphill journey? And so Jesus, now we can look at the passage. And Jesus goes, if you look at verse 22, he says, I want to give you another name for the kingdom of God. It's the days of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is, is another word for, for God's king his Messiah. And, uh, it's, 
It sounds, yes, on one hand he's human, but it's also a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It'll change the way you read the Gospels if you read the way Jesus describes himself in light of Daniel 7. Because look at it, it says, I'll just tell you what it says. In Daniel 7, it's this vision of God's kingdom. And here's the one who's going to be in control. It's someone who looks like a man, one like a son of man, with the clouds of heaven, he's going to come, and he comes to the Ancient of Days, to God himself, and is presented for him. And to this man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, shall not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. The days of the Son of Man, the day when... The good king rules and reigns, and that what he does can never be taken away. And Jesus says, that's me. So the Pharisees are asking, Jesus, when is this guy, the son of man, going to come and fix everything, nuke all the bad guys, (laughs) and make my life comfortable? When when is God going to dwell with us? And so Jesus says, look, you're not even going to be able to see it. Verse 23. People are going to say, look look here or look there, but don't go out and follow him because you're not going to be able to see it. The kingdom of God in verse 20 is not coming with signs to be observed, but the kingdom of God is among you in the midst of you. So here's... This is a teaching sermon, so we've got to make sense and pull out the picture that Jesus is painting. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the kingdom of God has already come. I am here. The end of history is beginning in the midst of you. And they can't even see it. The day when evil dies when external evil and internal evil will be destroyed, the process, God's rule and reign coming from heaven to earth is starting right now, right here. Heaven's invasion has begun. <laughs> and you're, you're worried about the end of history and, and external evil being destroyed? Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about that. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to be like lightning that goes from here all the way around the world, everybody's going to see it at once. It stretches from one end of heaven to the other, to the sky, one end of the sky to the other. Don't worry about that. See that first, the Son of Man has to suffer. It is necessary that he suffers and be rejected. So God's kingdom is coming. It's good news. And Jesus says that it's begun in me right now. 2,000 years ago in a forgotten corner of the world. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, what did Jesus teach you to pray? Let your kingdom come. It starts to give a language. Okay, how do I pray for God's kingdom? It's saying, God, deal with my sin, deal with my shame. Come and rule and reign and fix all the things that are outside of my control. From here to the ends of the earth. 
deal with my internal evil because I don't want your kingdom. Or these kinds of things. But really what this whole idea is, it's, it's, he's laying out a description of history and say this is the world in which you pray. The world in which God's kingdom has come. He's judged our evil, our sin, on the cross. And now we live waiting for him to come back so we can visibly see evil taken away forever. And that's the context of prayer. So we live in the, what theologians will call it the already and not yet. He's saying this is, this is the world in which we pray. God's kingdom has started. He is on his throne ruling and reigning in heaven. You can't see it. But it, it's coming. It will be finished. So just, just think about this prayer. Let your kingdom come. Out of all the billions and billions of prayers that have been prayed in the last 2,000 years, the different ways they've expressed, God, let your kingdom come. Right? God, fix those people. They're bullies. They're hurting me. Fix, get rid of war. Bring about peace. My kids are hungry. Fix those people over there, the other party. Though, fix the broken system, as people are saying now. Fix our justice system. And the gospel will tell you and show you that God has already answered some of those prayers. He has sent justice. But not to fix the other guys, to fix you and me. He sent the Son of Man, the judge, the king, to come and be judged in our behalf to bring us into this kingdom by grace. All while we're saying, God, fix those other people. And I love what Robert Capon says when he says, Jesus the judge gives this totally ridiculous verdict of forgiveness over an entire race of unrepentant, unreconstructed nuisances just because he didn't want to be bothered to prove what everybody already knows. This is his word, so don't hate the messenger. <laughs> to, to prove that they're already jerks. And it's selfish is what he's saying. And what mattered is to God that they are jerks to be pitied, to have compassion on. So much so that he was willing to destroy himself rather than having to destroy you and I. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Knowing that he's already brought us in by grace. And see, now that we have the confidence that he's already acted, he will finish the job. context for prayer. You pray knowing justice has fallen for me on Christ. Now I want to pray for God to work on other people, <laughs> for them to accept, the, accept grace, for his kingdom to spread. And so here's a helpful picture to think about it. God's kingdom has already started in Jesus 2,000 years ago. This was like well, D-Day, June 6, 1944. The Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. And the historians will tell you this was the turning point. After the victory came, the war was pretty much over. 
was the beginning of the end. But V-Day, the, the actual end of the war, wasn't for 11 months till 11 months later. And it, was one of, and it was actually one of the most bloodiest periods of the war. When battles were fought across France and Belgium and Germany, mortally wounded, the war was over. If you're looking at history, I mean, everyone can see it. You're, but when you're in the midst of it, it drags on and on and on. So you picture it this way. I mean, D-Day of God's kingdom, when heaven stepped on earth's shores, is the gospel. When Jesus came to die on a cross. And V-Day, the end, the end of history, when, when all things sad will come untrue and external and ev internal evil will be obliterated forever. That's yet to come, and we live in the middle of that. And Jesus says, I know you're going to struggle to pray. Our prayer life takes, takes place surrounded by evil. We're in the waiting period. So now you can see why it's so hard. And if, if we live in the, in the already and not yet, and it's still, there's still sin, there's still suffering, there's still selfishness inside and outside. Um, you can see why we're so quick to not believe that God's kingdom is coming, because we can't see it. And so that's why you've got to look at the rest of this passage, verses 26 through 37. This is my second point. It'll be quicker. Maybe. <laughs> uh, verses 26 through 37. What kingdom comes first? If this is the context for prayer, as we wait for God to come and fix everything, Jesus says we are just like the people in Noah and Lot's day. Just living our lives, waiting. Some aware and some not. Think about it. What, let, what kept people in Noah's day from praying, from believing, from seeing Noah building this ark, saying a flood's going to come, you need to repent, you need to say, I need God, I need you to preserve me. What kept them from believing? You look at it, this is what Jesus says. They were eating and drinking and marrying, and, and in Lot's day, they were buying and selling and building and planting. They were just living their lives. Like you, like me. They're being told repeatedly, God's kingdom is coming. God the king is going to wipe out sin, and they just yawned. They, went, they were worried about food on the table. Uh, they were having parties. They were worried about who am I going to spend the rest of my life with. They're worried about work, kids, programs. I mean, ordinary life. Lot's day is no different. I mean, he just points out more of the business side of things. So, I'm going to tie all this together. The kingdom of God has come. Why don't we pray? Why do we get so quick to give up? And Jesus says, we're just busy. It, it's common sense. <laughs> we get discouraged and distracted. But because we're discouraged, we're, so we're willing to be distracted. My kingdom... God, your kingdom isn't coming, so I'm going to work on mine. 
It's a statement of unbelief. Think about marriage and being given in marriage. This is what um, Aziz Ansari, a, a comedian, says in his book on dating today. He says, searching for a soulmate just takes a long time and an, an enormous amount of emotional investment. And the, prom- the problem is that the search for the perfect person generates a ton of stress. Younger generations face immense pressure to find that perfect person that simply didn't exist when in the past, when <laughs> in the past good enough was just good enough. And so he's saying that today people look at relationships saying, give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, g- also give me transcendence and mystery, and give me all, all in one. Give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. They're saying, make my life worth living. Help me to have meaning. No pressure. (laughs) People in Noah's day were no different. They didn't want to be alone. So they they put enormous amounts of time and energy in relationships. So if we pray, it's God, give me a spouse, the one I want, <laughs> that looks like the one I want. Or families that happen, right? We're just distracted. It's, it's normal life. And Jim Gaffigan, another comedian, and he says, you know what it's like to have a fourth child? Imagine you're drowning and someone hands you another baby. <laughs> and it's just, I'm not, I'm not complaining about our kids. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> But it's just the reality. You know, like you got to feed them, you got to clothe them, you got to chase after them, you got to keep them alive. When they're really tiny, they try and kill themselves over and over and over again. It's <laughs> and so we get busy, and then they get older, and then they have programs, and then they go off to college, and then they become adults, and then you just worry that they're going to be successful at life. And our jobs, I mean, building and selling, planting. It just takes time. We don't pray because we're distracted. Uh, Harold Abrams, for example. You've seen Chariots of Fire. It's a good time to talk about the Olympics. I mean, his career was professional athlete, and as he got ready to run in the 1924 Olympics, I mean, this is what he said. This is how he describes what drove him to work. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. My running is like a weapon I use to defend my Jewishness. He's saying, trying to cover my shame. Trying to give my kingdom meaning. And the scriptures tell us the same thing. This is what people have done for centuries. We're no different. Listen to Ezekiel 16. This is, this is why judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. We tend to think of sexual immorality it says, this is the guild of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, prosperous ease, and they did not aid the poor and needy. And that they were so concerned about their own lives, they didn't care about anything that God cared about. And so they didn't pray. They didn't think about God's kingdom. How do you, how do you be distracted in prayer? Just, just live your life. That right now is all there is. Jesus here is trying to show you dramatically 
he uses fear here in ways I don't, I'm not comfortable with, but this is how he uses it. He says, where the bodies are, the vultures will follow. I mean, judgment will come. And God's kingdom will come. And the only way to not be destroyed is to have your sin, your selfishness, dealt with at the cross. Because here's what's happened. When you come to the cross, God gives your kingdom meaning when you say, I'm not going to live my life for me. Because there's an enormous amount of freedom, is what I want to encourage you with, when you can say that there is much more to me than my life right now. That my life is not in my stuff. It's not in my accomplishments. It's not in how big or small my business is or how successful my family is. Whether I get it right every time, Jesus says my life is hidden in him, the king. And because he died for me, I'm free to be weak. Because he's alive, I'm free to die. Because he's perfect, I'm free to fail because he gives us his kingdom. We read what Jesus said. Why are you worried about your clothes and your food? In Luke 12's version, it says, why, he goes through all of that and says, why are you afraid? It's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. So look, it's kind of an odd sermon because this is setting you up to hear the parable. He's telling us more about how life is rather than what we should do. But think about this. We're called to pray. Let your kingdom come. We're called to say, God, help me to see that your kingdom matters more than mine. And, if I, and so that when I go out to business, when I go to work, when I'm parenting my children, when I'm looking for a spouse, well, you can talk like Eric Liddell, the famous... Olympian. He says, when I run, when I go to work, I feel God's pleasure. <laughs> and he can only say that with, if the gospel is true. That, that when I go out, I don't go out to prove myself. Jesus proved who I am, and he dealt with it. Right? So why should you pray? God's kingdom is coming whether you're looking for it or not. When you have eyes to see it, it will give you the strength and the hope to see that there is more to life than right now. The motivation here, I mean, it's kind of scary. The motivation for not being distracted in prayer is saying God will come again and everyone will see it. The days of the Son of Man are going to be like the days of Noah when the flood came and the days of Lot when his cities it was like a volcanic eruption destroyed everything. But the reality is, this ought to motivate our prayers. Because if God doesn't come to fix everything, we're going to be stuck where H.G. Wells was. And my depravity, the depravity of others, has come close to breaking my spirit because there's no happy ending unless God's kingdom is true. And Jesus shows us that it is. So look, don't be distracted. 
<laughs> don't be discouraged. God's kingdom has come and will again. Because he says, look, it is necessary that I suffer for you and be rejected. But can't you see now that life is more than, more than your stuff? So go and learn what it means that it's God's pleasure to give you this kingdom. Let's pray. Again, Father, this is a, a big picture sermon. We got to hear the good news that your kingdom has come, and it's better than we can even imagine, because our king will come to live with us. And yet I know myself, I know my own heart, I get busy and I get distracted, and that's everyone here. And so I pray that the gospel would be a power to free us from our fear, free us from distractions, and we would take time Pray for your kingdom to come and then to go out and love our neighbors. Singing and celebrating that you have set us free from the claustrophobic kingdoms of one. <laughs> so give us eyes to see what you're doing here in Boston Spa. <laughs> Motivate us to pray by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.